hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Ghouls in the House. I'm Natalie Latovsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we're here coming to you today with a whole bunch of goop. It's also part one of what's going to be kind of like a multi-episode run of movies that all kind of derive from the lineage of Alien. And I think all of it initially was partly inspired by uh, a documentary that we watched. We've been watching a lot of documentaries lately. We talked a while back about that really cool one we watched about the uh, folk horror. Mm-hmm. And this one was also on Shudder. It's uh, Memory, the Origins of Alien, which was produced by the same team that produced that zombie documentary I was in years ago, Doc of the Dead. And all the same people, Alexander Philippe directed it and Exhibit A Pictures put it together and they've gotten a lot of attention over the last few years for this and for a documentary we just finally caught up on, <laughs> which we we did our own episode on Psycho a while back, mm-hmm. but we only just recently watched their documentary 7852, which was all about the shower scene, which was very good. Just more recommendations to episode. That one we watched on Hulu. I don't know where else it, it lives. So on Shudder, you can see, well, right now anyway, you can still see Memory of the Origins of Aliens from 2019, and it gets very intellectual, but in a good way, about like the literary and cultural origins of Alien, but it also led us to go back and look at some other things, and I think maybe it was when we were watching that that I first thought, oh yeah, there's that Italian movie, and then you were thinking of, we were thinking of our usual thing of things to pair it with, and so... To kick off our multi-episode look at movies in and around the lineage of Alien from 1979, we're starting off first with two movies, one that has become sort of a go-to for us in the last few years, and one that will not. (laughs) The first movie is Contamination. Hey, Matt, suspense is calibrated. What do you think? There's not a soul in sight. Really weird. Which, like all good Italian horror and sci-fi movies, has 40 other titles, including Alien Contamination. That's quite a stretch right there. Mm -hmm. Just throw Alien on it. Or Toxic Spawn, or other things. And that's from 1980, just one year after Alien. And then we're also going to talk about the one that's our go-to, The Stuff from 1985. Tonight, America is in grave danger. It's a ghouls in the house sci-fi multiverse. Yeah. And also like to kick into recording quite a bit of new stuff. Last night we watched The Haunting again. So <laughs> it put it put us in that mood that fits perfectly for ghouls in the house. Being back in houses that we like to spend time in, which are usually creepy houses. The Haunting or House on Haunted Hill, sometimes The Thing. They're like our movie version of Sherbert that Ooh, you have thing. like between meal courses. We got to watch that again. <laughs> We're going to lead off with contamination, and we don't have a lot to say about it. (laughs) Well, one thing I will say just to start off is that both of these movies that we're talking about today are available on Tubi to watch. Tubi is an awesome streaming service. It's fantastic. They have minimal commercials. There really aren't that many. And the commercial breaks are very short. They're usually between one and two minutes, so way less than you'd get on TV. But the movies are completely uncut. And in the last couple of months, they've really started adding more, like, almost mainstream 
movies. Like some of the Halloween movies ended up there. Yeah. And if you don't mind a couple of commercials, it's a completely free way to watch them, which is pretty great. I love it. And I, and I couldn't believe it. We went looking like, oh, can we find contamination? Because there are also a lot of these movies, including some we hope to cover in future episodes, that I like preemptively over the years have bought. Mm-hmm. Like if Scream Factory or something puts them out, I'll buy it. And I may not have even looked at it yet, but I figure, well, we'll watch it eventually. I've never bought Contamination. And the thing is, in the past, I might have thought, oh, I'll grab Contamination because it has reasons yeah. why I would have thought that. It's a 1980 Italian horror sci-fi movie. It crosses over with several people that are like associated with things I already knew of or liked. It it comes a year after Zombie 2. And features as its star Ian McCullough, They're the British actor who also was the lead in Zombie, and basically went right into this. And the director, Luigi Cazzi, here, worked on Star Crash. Actually wanted Carolyn Monroe in this originally, because I can understand that's a reasonable choice when you've already worked on Star Crash. Didn't work out. He also did a giallo for Flies on Grey Velvet, because they always have to have an animal and a weird phrasing and you know a color if possible a color if you <laughs> yes this giallo rules and the remit here was uh we want an alien so making an alien with the eggs and the thing and the blowing up and that was the whole point it was just make an alien ripoff like we've talked about a million times do the movies the american movie is doing and make mm-hmm. five or six of them or a hundred of them and that's what contamination is although set in on present day earth Right. But with the weirdness of there was a space trip that brought back something. Yeah, I mean, and the unit examining all of this is sort of a futuristic, like, all-encompassing, like, X-Files-y kind of agency with high security clearance. Oh, yeah. And one of the other things that excited us when the movie started, and let's just tell all of you in advance, don't let it excite you. (laughs) Is the Goblin was listed as the music, right? And we right. thought, oh, this will be great because we'll have like Dawn of the Dead riffs going on and and Ian McCullough's back from Zombie and his hair is marginally better in this one than it was in Zombie. But this was a serious disappointment, I think, across the board. Well, I should say for the first like 10 or 15 minutes, we thought, hey, this might actually be kind of an interesting movie like we can see why maybe there's like a cult affinity for it it's a cool idea because you're used to seeing i guess sort of alien type activities happen in space or like in a small town like something lands in a small town and everything's weird this movie had the same it it hit me in the same way as i've always talked about the end of resident evil Mm -hmm. the end of resident evil has the shot of the movie I want to see that then doesn't quite happen. Right. Because two does not deliver on that in the way I would expect. This movie starts off where you think, oh my God, are we going to see like an alien style thing of like xenomorphs or something bursting out of people in modern day New York and spreading across the city? Let me just say right from the outset, no, you're not. not going to see that. Although the movie ends with the implication that that might happen but it's going to happen off camera where they don't have to shoot it. So, <laughs> you know, so like, yeah. The, and the other thing that's important to note here is this is one of the video nasties. Contamination was one of the non-prosecutes on list two of the video nasties. And I think this is definitely a case where this movie 
has benefited in the horror community from that association. Sure. And it does have, I mean, like you said, the first 10, 15 minutes, you get the exploding. Like their whole idea was, okay, what's the thing from Alien we most want to copy, right? It's the chestburster scene. Yeah, and it's the egg. And yeah, and it's an egg. And it, and it looks like an egg. And it's like, well, what can we do that's better? And their idea was, how about we just have the whole body explode? Except that everybody that explodes in this movie is wearing like a hazmat suit with what looks like 40 or 50 pounds of special effects gear under it for the explosion. <laughs> so they don't really look convincing. But they have a very portly squad that's investigating the hazmat situation. It's just splatter everywhere. And just the idea of it, I can certainly understand in 1980 would have been enough for them to say, put this on the list because this is exploding people. But then after the first 10, 15 minutes, that all stops. And it becomes like a political intrigue thrill thriller, sort of, with two guys who are both smarmy and unlikable, stuck with a woman who has to hold both of them off as they try to investigate where these eggs are coming from. Do you mean they come from outer space? Why not? How many worlds are there in the universe? Millions. Perhaps millions. Unless they come from much closer, but... And then you get like five, ten minutes at the end of the giant alien that's laying the eggs. Mm -hmm. And basically it's it's bookends of something mildly interesting with a very boring movie in the middle of it. And as we were preparing to record this, you were saying and like like an extended suspense sequence that offers no suspense whatsoever of her trapped in her bathroom at the hotel. So here's I mean, if you're going to watch it, did which, we say full spoilers, by the way, I mean, you know. You're listening to our show. Do we need to say that anymore? At this point, full spoilers. But it's sort of the premise you get set up with in the beginning, partially, I think, is simply because they needed a way to have some kind of cargo vessel on Earth. So a ship rather than a spaceship, you get a container ship. But also because I think, as we've witnessed with many of the Italian films shot in New York, the docks are a great place to go film something without somebody catching you without a permit. Right. So it even sounds kind of like watching the beginning of Zombie because you have all of the same dock noises and like horns yeah. and things that come down at the dock. And it's like a strange experience because it's like deja vu, like I'm experiencing this all over again, but in a different context yeah and it was kind of, again it was a way of like lulling us into a false sense of security because i thought oh okay this this could be fun yeah so you get like all these elements put into place of there's this ship moving towards the harbor nobody's answering the calls we just talked to them less than 24 hours ago and everything was fine they board the ship in like a hazmat way and it's very like ghost ship mary celeste like everything on the tables like, what is going on here until they finally start finding bodies? And then they find, like, a container that's supposed to be full of coffee, but is instead full of these, like, strangely mesmerizing egg things that you can see have tilted out of a box and landed next to a, a heating pipe, which just, like, gave them a warm, cozy feeling that allowed them to become their gooey, splody selves. It's also worth noting, though, that for all of the flaws in this movie and the fact that ultimately, again, like there's not a lot to dissect here. It's mm -hmm. like it has a couple interesting ideas. It's very boring for most of it. It does not generate a lot of mood. 
And then you get the weird uh, Cyclops alien at the end, which is very bad. Like, just a big wall of goop they created with an eyeball and and a strange aperture at the bottom. When we said this was going to be full of goop, we were not kidding. There's a lot of goop going on. There's a lot of goop. And also, though, it's interesting that it does sit in the, as I said, sort of the lineage both before and after. Like, obviously, it was directly inspired by Alien in the sense that somebody told Katsu rip off alien that's i mean there's no uh, obscurity about that that's no. what it was and it's like okay fine it's a tradition but also it reaches back so for instance uh i made a quick note of just a few things first of all the idea of looking for the eggs and the idea of people helping to transport the eggs is very invasion of the body snatchers mm-hmm. and the pods but more directly uh it picks up on some classic 50s and 60s sci-fi including it came from outer space which anybody remembers features a one-eyed alien that's like manipulating a small town to help rebuild its ship there's that uh the creature itself in the design is not too dissimilar from the big carpet monster in the creeping terror it also (laughs) has like an orifice and you know a top head and kind of crawling eye crawling eye i made a note of that Mm -hmm. And also, reaching forward into the future, the idea that it causes people to explode also instantly reminded me of the subplot in Cloverfield where the little crab-like creatures that hitched a ride on the big monster from deep in the ocean, when they attack you, they sting you, and then as people find out, it takes a while, but eventually it like fills you up with sea gas or whatever, and you burst open and you explode. Which now I'm wondering if the people in Cloverfield thought, hey, you remember that old Italian movie, Contamination? What if we did that but did it like good, you know, like, you know, frightening and and disturbing, which it was. It was great in Cloverfield. But not just awkwardly goopy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really sad and and, and horrifying when like it first happens. It's very well done. So, I mean, but the thing is, I'm also wondering, you could come up with that, but it feels very much like it connects. This all connects. So... This sits somewhere in the history of everything, but in and of itself, it's a very disappointing experience. And I'm glad to have seen it, but I can't imagine ever wanting to see it again. I mean, if I want to watch two guys arguing over a girl at like some, like, where the hell were they even? Some like motel or something. (laughs) That's a lot of the movie is them standing in the hallway, just like, you know, debating who's going to try to get in her room. Yeah. (laughs) meanwhile she actually wants them to try to get in her room because the villain's girlfriend has locked her in a bathroom with one egg and by the way these eggs only explode you when you touch them right right so just stay away from the egg you just don't touch the egg and you won't explode yeah and you'll be fine but she's in the bathroom, taking a shower. Somebody just like slides an egg right in there and locks the door and then puts the do not disturb sign on her door. It's a nice hotel touch when you want someone to die in a hotel room. And she's just like, what do I do? And she's like screaming and trying to break the door down and just keeps giving like furtive glances to well, the egg. But wasn't it also like maybe because it's like heating up in the room with the shower, like does the heat alone make it... You still have to touch it, though, don't you? You still have to touch it. Well, either way. The heat, like, activates it, but... Either way, folks, it's stupid. You gotta touch (laughs) it. And, of course, like, the girlfriend, like, drives back to headquarters and is like, took care of that problem. You won't be hearing from her again. But she didn't, like, stick around to find out whether or not Mm -hmm. she actually exploded. She's just like, dropped an egg, we're good. And then they kill the egg and suddenly they realize it went wrong. Which is also a cool touch that they don't 
revealed to the audience till much, much later, farther into the movie, which is there is like... There's like a gestalt consciousness. Yeah, it's yeah. like a mind control aspect of it, a collective, like you're all feeling what the creature feels and by virtue of that, what the egg feels. And That's so when they destroy an egg, like, yeah. everyone who's connected to this consciousness feels it happen. It's not... Yeah, again, there are some interesting ideas in it and it could have been a fun schlocky movie it mm -hmm. really doesn't make the most of what it could you know make out of its premise it really is kind of lame ultimately and 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 a shame that it, it winds up that way and also it's weird like to have a video nasty that has a couple really gruesome sequences but then they it's all like front-loaded yeah. in like the first 10-15 minutes and then you get like one sequence at the end where you get a few of them and it's like i thought we were going to get bodies blowing up all through the movie and quite frankly i am disappointed that that is not what we got i expected consistent gruesome body mutilation through the entire film instead of like just a couple scenes yeah it's like 10 15 minutes of alien ripoff and then the rest of it is like a really low rent bond ripoff yeah where they send them on like an international like mission of intrigue and espionage and i'll tell you one thing ian mccullough is no george lazenby <laughs> we interrupt this presentation with the following urgent message regarding the stuff if you see it in stores call the police if you have it in your home don't touch it get out the stuff is a product of nature a deadly living organism it is addictive and destructive it can overcome your mind and take over your body. And nothing can stop it. So anyway, when finding something to pair it with, I think it was your initial suggestion was, why don't we just do the stuff? Because it really does have a lot of connections to this. And it sort of sits as a post-alien sort of body horror. Film. By the way, there's one area of body horror we both seem to be able to deal with. Yeah. It's like a very, we've talked about this before, I despise body horror, I find it disgusting and cannot deal with it, but obviously not all of it. There's like a certain kind of alien I can watch, anything related to alien that I've seen, it's it's just on the one side of being disgusting to me and, and I can deal with it. And this too, anything related to the alien kind of stuff and the stuff and all those, those I can handle. Because that's more about, I mean, genuinely more about explosions and less about like the paper cut kind of body horror that right. you get in a lot of other stuff that neither of us can really handle the like pain that happens a thousand times over in little bits and pieces. And we just can't watch that. It's very just off-putting for both of us. But this is a little different because it's more about like full takeover and then like fully vacating so it's sort of complete so we we were doing this stuff and uh we went back and forth for a while and we still are not 100 percent that we feel certain that in the run of doctor of the dead we did prior to starting ghouls in the house and this show that given it's become one of our go-to movies surely we would have talked about it already and apparently we did not i can't find any evidence to suggest we did <laughs> Unless it was a brief mention in that Doctor of the Dead we did, there was a big roundup of like 100 zombie movies. Right. Probably is on that list. 
So we're going to talk about it. And if we've talked about it before, sorry, but it's become one of those. I, it was never a movie I used to put on regularly in the old days, but it quickly grew into one for us. And it has a lot to recommend it as a great, fun, tongue-in-cheek sci-fi horror movie that knows what it is, is not attempting to be bad, but is also knowing it's not going to be great. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I think in a way that sums up a lot of what Larry Cohen did. He did a lot of like Corman-esque or like B-movie kind of stuff, but he often had a very intelligent view in it. Like he often talked for this. He, he meant this to be a satire of consumerism and like capitalist thing. And it's very it, much a social commentary. Yeah. And in fact, he says it's what new world, you know, which is Corman's companies is what new world didn't like about it. Cause they thought they'd get, they were going to have more of a marketable, you know, crazy horror movie. And he wanted to make more of a statement with it and make it more of a satire. Mm-hmm. And it very much feels that way. And that's maybe one of the main reasons why we like it, but also why initially it didn't, work well but i think it's settled in very nicely to be a cult film and it has a lot of elements of being a cult film it has a really unusual but great cast if anybody is a law and order devotee going back to the beginning michael moriarty is in it it was stone in the old days uh he's since gone completely wacko like i don't know libertarian or right wing or he's like convinced the world is out to get him he went real hermit and strange like off the grid yeah he's really weird but and in fact his departure from law and order was weird too he insisted like the government was out to get them or something it was a weird thing maybe he didn't realize he was acting anymore i'm not so sure yeah and but anyway in this he's mo and he'll explain to you why many times many times rutford mo rutford you know why they call me mo no why because every time people give me money i always want mo and then Garrett Marsh shows up, and he's very good in his in his short part. In fact, I feel he's underutilized. Like when Garrett Marsh turns up as sort of their take on Famous Amos, and teams up with Moriarty's character of Mo Rutherford, they make a fantastic team, and their team lasts the equivalent of maybe about one scene until they yeah. decide to to split up. And I feel like it would have benefited from the two of them staying together longer. They're a good; they play off each other well. We've never really read a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and i wonder I if there were just like scheduling limitations for yeah. garrett morris but it's unfortunate they do make a great team yeah because they're also both just like so committed to whatever this characterization is that they've decided that they are and it's like kind of amazing to watch their insanity like butt up against each other and also in the cast we got andrea markovici holds her own very nicely as the female lead and then you got uh, well you got another number of character actors turn up throughout but the main one for me is paul servino who if you know him another law and order alum if you know him from his short stint on law and order or more likely probably remember him from goodfellas and mm-hmm. stuff like that he plays a completely over-the-top right-wing radio host military paramilitary lunatic who is very prescient of a character like fits would fit very nicely into a movie right now Mm -hmm. as the kind of character he is but who weirdly becomes an ally in the sense that when the world is collapsing their interests align because they're all about defending the earth from 
radicals or you know, he thinks probably liberal aliens. They needed somebody anti-establishment. And... Yeah. And it's interesting also, by the way, that Servino plays the same character beat in a way in one of the most underrated superhero movies ever made. And uh, I think a lot of people have now come around to his The Rocketeer, where he's the lead of the mob in that. And there's a great scene where when they find out one of the main characters is a Nazi agent, the mob and the FBI join together and Servino has some kind of line. I may not make an honest buck, but I'm 100% American. And I don't work for no two-bit Nazi. And it's a great moment where, like, they're all against the Nazis. And here he is. He may be this right-wing lunatic, but we're all against anything that's, you know, destroying the Earth. And the other thing, though, I guess we should say, so basically... Say, maybe we should back this up a little bit okay. and, like, lay out a, a plot for those who don't know it. And I will say, if you don't, watch it first. and then yes. And then listen, because full spoilers abound, but also this genuinely is worth a watch. So the stuff on one level, is basically an 80s take on the blob. And actually, the blob itself would be remade about three years after this in a movie that also is a damn good version of the blob, actually, the remake. Mm. But the original blob uh, is a lot of the same beats. You have in this the discovery of some sort of substance that looks like whipped cream or, you know, like like ice cream or Marshmallow something. Marshmallow fluff. yeah that seems to be seeping up from underground and appears to have some sort of consciousness. And like we were just talking about, these are why these themes connect for us. Mm -hmm. Some sort of gestalt effect where it'll take people over. They're part of a greater whole, the pod people kind of thing. Although there's also zombie-esque connotations to this stuff because in some sense it seems as if it actually eventually feeds on and hollows out the human inside and is still manipulating the body like a puppet which is also similar to other things like the fungus in The Last of Us and things like that. Yeah. You know? Although the rules seem to vary. There are characters in this that we've, for all the times we've watched it, we've never quite been able to figure out who apparently ingest the stuff but are still sort of human and are afraid of other creatures that have ingested the stuff and are still sort of what they are. Maybe they're not. Maybe there's levels of this. But it's taking over. The implication also, for me anyway, is that the stuff is not alien and not a creation, but possibly a natural material from the Earth itself, which also means it links back to our one of our previous episodes, several of our previous episodes, as a movie in line with the birds and the happening, in which the stuff may be also a movie that's an ecological commentary about the Earth just being tired of our crap. Right. And and maybe trying to just take over humanity and guide it. I mean, really, what it comes down to is all of the various themes and commentary in it all circle back to the idea of consumption. Yeah. So the stuff is also a metaphor for addiction because it like compels you to continue eating it to the point where it's taking over your life and it's all you can think about and it's all you want to do. You have to have it all the time. But it also... Destroys families. It destroys families. It's something that's also just about consumerism in general because it really leans into the whole idea about how once they found this, the way to get people to try it, at least for the first time before you get them hooked, is they had to market it. So you had to come up with a name and a jingle and you had to come up with a whole ad campaign and 
placements in stores and end cap displays and little like shacks that only sell the stuff where children are eating it at three o'clock in the morning. And it's sort of like there's that aspect of consumerism and capitalism, even coming back around to the idea that even after knowing what it is and what it can do towards the end of the movie, you find there are still companies trying to figure out, okay, how do we take it and then cut it with something else and essentially water it down. So it just has that addictive quality, but it won't take over your body. Which of course speaks to the development of the entire tobacco industry mm -hmm. and, and everything else. Right. So there's like a whole, it's a very intelligent movie. Yeah, there's a whole host of themes that relate to consumption. And if you want to think of it from an ecological perspective... Which I don't think he necessarily intended because he's mm -mm. never said that. No. he uh, Cohen talked about the fact that he thought it was a commentary on consumerism like American lifestyle. Right. He never said it, at least as far as I can remember, if anybody else thinks otherwise or remembers an interview. I don't think he ever mentioned that angle, but it really feels like you could see that. It still works and it still kind of ties back into consumption. The, mm -hmm. the, the place where it bubbles up out of the earth where they first find it is a quarry. Like it's a mine yeah. where they're constantly like digging and digging and digging into the earth and pulling stuff up. And finally, I guess you get to a point where the earth itself is like enough and it just starts bubbling out. I love that scene with the mine where they're like overseeing the big place where they're really digging a lot of it up. Mm -hmm. It's one of the great effect shots. That's the other thing, too. This movie is a lot of fun. And because it is and because it's very smart, it earns a pass on some very uneven special effects. It's not it's not very consistent production wise. I mean, like most Larry Cohen stuff, this is not big budget filmmaking. But it's not bad filmmaking at all. And the only issue is it's very inconsistent. Like there are some process shots that look terrible. There's a lot of like matting and things like there's the crashing, smashing glass and one thing. <laughs> it looks bad. But then suddenly they'll have a scene like that mining shot, which I'm pretty certain is one of those classic model in the foreground, set in the background shots. Right to create the depth and the, the scale. And it looks good. Yeah. Um, because otherwise you couldn't get the bloops coming up, I think, or puppetry that's being done on a small scale and then it's put in the foreground. It looks good. And some of the other stuff, they, some of the other stuff, they had to do the <laughs> stuff in many different ways. Like sometimes they use shaving cream, sometimes they use this, depending on what they're doing with it. They had to use different kinds of stuff. And for the most part, it looks good. Another one that's also really cool is if you're like a real student of like horror film effects and production, you can actually see the same uh, room in this movie that was used mm. a year earlier in Nightmare on Elm Street. If you remember the big scene where Amanda Weiss's character gets like thrown up the ceiling and everything and they right. used a room on gimbals that rotated, that whole set rotated. This movie then rented that room set for a sequence where the stuff kind of crawls up a wall and holds a guy up the wall and mm -hmm. of course it's being shot at a different angle so that they can use the room great sequence um they very clearly set a stunt man on fire yeah yeah oh yeah <laughs> but I'm, it's also it's good effects work there like the firework that they do is also very good effects work and i remember as a kid seeing pictures of it in a magazine and 
the arguably one of the showstopper sequences is the sad moment where you discover that eventually Garrett Morris's character is now part of the stuff and tries to get what is it Nicole when they're at the radio station and that sequence is several different puppets practical puppets one after the other and like some prosthetics and on the one hand it's really silly but on the other hand it's also awesome it's just I mean, now you would do that with like CGI and it would look equally terrible. It's like, all right, he's he's a big Garrett Mars puppet. You know it's a puppet, but you're having fun. Yeah, exactly. And that... I, I think that's a really important point to make. Like there are times when you're like, oh, these effects are terrible. But also you kind of don't care because they're terrible because they had an idea that was bigger than their budget and they decided they're going to do it anyway. And I much prefer that to someone who doesn't, really have an idea at all and is just trying to string some scenes together also we got to give a lot of credit to actor scott bloom who plays the kid jason that kind of teams up with him it's also one of those great movies for like seeing like the bunch of people that are all coming together as a team and he has to carry quite a bit himself as a kid and uh, he does a great job in that and his own brother plays his brother in it and they have those really creepy eyes (laughs) the bloom brothers have (laughs) But he's great. He he has to do not an effect. It's just their eyes. It's just their eyes. He has to do a lot of heavy stuff, like you know the scene where he knows like his whole family's against him. Which also, by the way, those those shots of them running in the neighborhood with the backlighting. I mean, there's no way. Obviously, Cohen's thinking invasion of the body snatchers in that part. That's perfect. But between that and uh, I'd also forgotten a lot of like weird cameos for the commercial stuff. You know, if you want to see Abe Vigoda helping to sell the stuff, <laughs> this is your movie. Very catchy jingle. Yes, it is. Enough is never enough. Enough is never enough of the stuff. So yeah, I mean, I'm convinced that maybe we should get some of that. You never know. The thing is, every time I watch this movie, all I want to do is eat marshmallow fluff. <laughs> Like, truly. And there are not a lot of practical applications for how to consume marshmallow fluff. Like, I'm surprised it is a product that has continued to exist throughout time because it's just, like, whipped spreadable marshmallow Mm -hmm. in a jar, which is amazing. It's great on a sandwich. I prefer a fluffer nutter with peanut butter and the marshmallow fluff. And I would like to eat one right now, except we have no marshmallow fluff. So... All that being said, it's also kind of speaking to the fact that they zeroed in on something that looks and feels like innately appetizing. Mm -hmm. It's like this movie wasn't about some like weird alien pod or like some odd fruit or seed or something that they were trying to like show, oh, it has this immediate mind control effect Mm -hmm. because then it kind of almost takes all the responsibility off the consumer. Right. Right. It's like, if it's controlling you from the start and it's just like some weird glowing thing and you're like, I must consume this. Like, obviously that's not a choice that you're making. You're being compelled. But in this case, gosh, it looks good. It looks really good. (laughs) And like, as his mom is sort of saying towards the beginning that like, it tastes great. It's low fat. It doesn't even leave a stain when your kid knocks the container, like onto the cabinet. Like, how can this miracle food be true? Like I'm losing weight. It tastes good. Like whole family's enjoying. And at the beginning you can see, oh, it's just like 
a treat that they have. There's like one or two containers in their refrigerator and every so often they'll like have a midnight snack of it. And then by the time it takes them over, they've gone like full like 1950s like American housewife nuclear family where she's setting a full table and there's just this big like goblet of a party bowl in the middle of the table and it is just full of the stuff. Like it's no longer I'll just have a spoon or two out of the container. It's that Like, we are all going to consume this together in, like, a very structured, manufactured way where we will, like, dish it out from a giant decorative glass punch bowl on our table. (laughs) Like, it's it's, it's high-end. Yeah, and that, to me, really says something about what they've zeroed in on in terms of, of consumerism, in terms of appetite, you know, in terms of willpower and control. And just a a desire as well just to feel good and, like, enjoy yourself. Like, yeah, it's a quote-unquote health food product in this world because it's low fat or whatever. But also it's an indulgence. Like, you're eating it because it's, like, some kind of, like, silky dessert food that I imagine tastes great. Like, it looks like it tastes great. And I, for me, really the only part of it where i have that disconnect and the only answer i can get is maybe it does still have some kind of compelling force is the first guy who eats it he's a miner like he just works at this quarry and they're cleaning up at night and he just sees a homeless guy no he works there he works at the mine i've only seen it 400 times so why why would he be on the mining site i don't know work there they're trying to call him in at the end of the, the shift I'm only someone who purports to be an authority on films. Why would I remember this detail? You're also not very observant. I'm not. <laughs> Which is odd, considering that we spend all our time talking about analyzing And you have an, ID, like an eye for detail. <laughs> I'm going to leave this all in, though, because whatever. <laughs> so the guy who works at the mine, okay. end of the shift, working a long shift, sees a puddle, and the puddle is full of white goop that's just going, bloop, bloop, bloop. And he's like, hmm. And he leans down, shoves his hand in it, and then sticks it in his mouth. And is like, hey, this is good. And it's like, where where did that leap happen? Like, where... Well, see, that genuinely does feel like there's a moment where it somehow manages to reach out and say, you should taste this. Right. I guess so. It's like, I feel like, for the most part, they seem... To be saying that people were sold on the stuff and that's why they ate it. Well, that's how it scales up. Right. But I guess maybe the first guy, it just needed a way. It may also in. have really tried. Because the second the guy, one. a guy walks up like to be like, why are you coming in? And he's like, you got to try this stuff. It's good. And he looks at him and goes, Ugh. like <laughs> you just shoved your hand in a hole in the ground and you're eating what stuck to it. So either it compelled him or he genuinely was just that dumb i i don't know it's like a weird disconnect for me because everyone else i think bought into it once it's packaged and marketed and sold it makes sense right so i mean okay it had to get out somehow i suppose like if it bubbles out of the ground like and you as the viewer know right from the start it bubbles out of the ground Mm -hmm. so when they're trying to get to the root of how it's manufactured and what it's made from and all of that it's an interesting plot line because the viewer already knows it came out of a hole in the ground yeah 
This is an interesting side note as far as film history is concerned, by the way. This is the last film role of Alexander Scorby, who appears as Evans. I think that's one of the uh, executives. Mm. But Alexander Scorby was um, an actor who's best known for being in Fritz Lang's The Big Heat in 53. But the thing that's interesting about him is he spent most of his career being a voice that countless people probably knew. He recorded over 400 audiobooks for the blind. He considered his most important work, according to his Wikipedia page. But the thing that really gets me is he's well-remembered in the English-speaking world for his landmark recordings of the entire King James Version of the Bible, released in numerous editions. He later recorded the entire Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Basically, his voice became the voice of religion for tons of people that might have bought audio versions of the bible i didn't even know they got to do revised versions of that yeah it gets an editing pass yeah, at some point let's move these things around <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense that these would have happened at this point let's cut this scene and move these so two you bring in a continuity expert yeah so evans was the voice of the bible at one point interesting and then he's running the stuff a product that's meant to completely ensnare the hearts and minds of americans and manipulate them to its will so it's consistent it what, is. what he works on. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nblatovsky, that's nblit of sky, and Arnold at Dr. the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Contamination, 1980, and The Stuff, 1985. All your questions will be answered here. Ghouls in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Well, you know, Mr. Rutherford. Yes, sir? I don't think you're quite as dumb as you appear to be. No one is as dumb as I appear to be.